This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here. Today, we're playing you the first of a three-part investigation into Uber's critical first years from our global news podcast, Today in Focus. This is episode one of The Uber Files, The Unicorn. Here's Michael Safi. Push a button, get a ride. For millions of us, it's become routine. And not just for getting around, for ordering food, groceries, whatever. I barely remember what we did before, but I do remember my first Uber ride. The receipts in my emails, along with every ride I've ever taken. November the 9th, 2014, nearly 1am in the middle of Sydney, Australia. As usual, no taxis around. And my friends and I thought, why not try this app everyone's talking about? The first weird thing was, it was just some guy's car, not a taxi. And I remember the feeling of uncertainty we all had when it pulled up. I'm not sure that first time any of us would have gotten in alone. Anyway, the driver, Tanvir, according to the receipt, was fine, obviously. We were in the car for 8 minutes and 38 seconds. Yeah, we probably could have just walked. And when we got to wherever we were going, we got out of the car and that was it. No discussion of the fare, no money exchanged, no hassles with the change. It cost $9.25, way cheaper than a cab. And all of us in the car, including the driver, spent the ride talking about Uber. How cool this was, what a game changer. It felt like the future. We had questions. How are we able to do this? Was it legal? And how is it so cheap? I think we assumed that people much smarter than us had figured it out somehow. This was innovation, disruption, tech startups, a whole new world, where things would be easier and more efficient. Honestly, I don't think most of us really cared why, how this was possible. And we should have. Because now we're living in the world that companies like Uber built. Today, tomorrow and Wednesday, we're bringing you a three-part global investigation into what it took to build that world. A story told for the first time using more than 100,000 leaked documents, emails and text messages from inside the company. Uber has become one of the biggest tech firms on the planet, helping to create not just a new industry, but a whole new kind of worker. It did so by breaking laws, duping police, exploiting violence against drivers, and secretly lobbying prime ministers and presidents, billionaires and oligarchs, and millions of what we now call gig economy workers are living with the legacy. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, The Uber Files, Part 1, The Unicorn. At the touch of your fingertip, the Uber app brings a car right to your straight corner. Right now, that service is available in major cities, and Portland could be next on the list. But This is Uber's playbook, how the company would take a city. It would unfold the same in almost every country. 
First, they needed drivers. The company would send in an advanced team. We are excited about the potential opportunity to connect riders and drivers in Portland, says the spokeswoman. The company and they'd start recruiting, blanketing the city in ads, looking for taxi drivers or just people with cars and spare time. The company says it's testing the waters by putting out ads for drivers on Facebook. We often test ads to measure the viability of UberX in different markets. They'd give them iPhones and hundreds of dollars in bonuses just for signing up, agreeing to drive for Uber. If major American cities are using Uber, why not in Portland? And people did, in huge numbers. Once they had the drivers, what the company called supply, the next step was getting customers, who they called riders. And there are two things that can't be denied about Uber at this point. One, the company is incredibly successful. And two, they are making a lot of enemies and running into a lot of problems along the way. Both of those things proving true once again here in Portland. That also involved giveaways, free rides, bonuses for signing up your mates. And in those early years, unusually cheap trips. Some breaking news right now. As of just a few minutes ago, Uber, the international ride-sharing service, is now operating in Portland, despite city leaders saying that is against the law. In most places where it was launching, it wasn't clear that Uber was operating legally. But by the time regulators figured out what had happened, that Uber was in their city, it was too late. Every person I pick up, what they, they love say? it. They love it. They love it. They said, we are happy Uber is here. That's what they say. There were too many drivers, too many customers. Uber might have been technically illegal, but you couldn't stop it. Actually, I just found out from City Hall, they say that they will be operating illegally and there may be penalties. Now, Uber told me today that they have tried to work with the city to come up with new regulation and it hasn't happened, so they're just going to go ahead and move forward. Of course, there was almost always pushback. Taxi cabs filling Pioneer Courthouse Square. Drivers are trying to get the city's attention to make sure ride-sharing services like Uber don't get special treatment. Local regulators or politicians or the taxi industry. This is my full-time job. This is where I live. I have a family to support. And I don't really uh, appreciate uh, somebody to come and take my job. They were part three of the playbook. And Uber was always ready. I've lived in Portland since 1998. I don't drive, actually. I'm legally blind. There's basically not a lot of bus service in southwest Portland. The city couldn't stop people using the app, but if it went after the drivers, Uber would send emails to all its customers, inviting them to sign petitions or contact local politicians, let them know how much they enjoyed the service, how badly they wanted Uber to stick around. When Uber launched here, I was so thrilled. Um, I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for it to launch. They'd send messages to Uber drivers, telling them to stay on the road, whatever happened. If they got fines or had their cars towed, don't worry, Uber would cover the costs. But you're willing to take the risk in Portland. Well, it's Uber, Uber backs its drivers 100%. This strategy to rush into a city, get a foothold before anyone could stop it, it was really successful. The city will fast track their plans to get new taxi and Uber regulations that will allow all sides to coexist. At the beginning of 2014, Uber operated in 66 cities. By the end of that year, it was 266. A year ago, Colorado became the first state to recognize transportation network companies as a kind of a distinct category. And since then, roughly 50 different jurisdictions have recognized an entirely new category of transportation services. The same process in every city. 
First drivers, then riders, then regulators. L'application Uber débarque à Lille, ce qui ne réjouit pas tout le monde. Les taxis sont en colère, écrit la... Hundreds of taxi drivers have already joined the Uber network in Kenya and even more are signing up. Recently, Uber By the end of the following year, 2015, Uber was in more than 400 cities. Today, it's available in more than 10,000 cities and towns. Every tech company has its origin myth. Uber, in fact, has a couple. The first involves a young tech millionaire, a guy called Garrett Camp, who in 2008 was lounging around his San Francisco apartment watching the Bond film Casino Royale. As Mike Isaac, a journalist, writes in his book Super Pumped, Camp was watching a scene where Bond was driving his fancy car through the Bahamas and tracking himself on the screen of his Sony Ericsson phone, a little dot working its way across the map. Are you going to take this or make me wait? <laughs> Certainly, sir. Back in 2006, when the film came out, that was the kind of thing that was so advanced, it was only available to fictional spies. But the world was changing quickly. And by 2008, the iPhone had been invented. The smartphone revolution was underway. And Camp thought something like this, but for taxis, actually wouldn't be that hard to do. Johanna Buyan, a senior tech reporter with Guardian US, started covering Uber a few years later. And she knows another version of how the company came to be. And it starts with Uber's founders in a French hotel room in the middle of winter. They were in Paris in a hotel room during the Le Web conference, which is a, a very big tech conference. Just picture a very snowy day in Paris and extremely rich men are in a hotel room and they're very, very upset that they can't hail a car because it's snowing outside. And this is very inconvenient for them because they need to get to wherever they're going and they're used to getting what they want. They have to go to the Le Web conference. Exactly. <laughs> They said that that's when they came up with this idea of a car sharing service that would just be a members only app that only worked with professional drivers who had like the best cars and you could hail it whenever you want. And, you know, they would come straight to your door. Everyone's private driver, I think, was the slogan. And a short time later, back in San Francisco, the company, Uber Cab, as it was called, was born. At first, it was only for limousine drivers, but within a few years, it would spread to all kinds of cars, including taxis and UberX, which let pretty much anyone with a decent car and a clean background check take passengers around. Uber wanted to grow as quickly as possible, throwing money at customers, drivers, anything to get people using the service. And they were already meeting opposition. Mike Isaac, in his book, tells another story about Uber from those early days. And for me, it feels like a third origin story. Not where Uber was born, but maybe where it was made. In October 2010, just a few months after the company was launched, back when it was still just for professional drivers, it got a letter from San Francisco's transport authorities. They said what Uber was doing was illegal, and they were threatening to send the founders to jail. And these early employees... They froze. What are we supposed to do, one asked. The answer came immediately from the 34-year-old tech entrepreneur who had co-founded the company and become its CEO not long before. We ignore it, he said. While regulators complained, 
threaten fines or worse, Uber would just carry on. That CEO's name was Travis Kalanick. My next guest is the co-founder and CEO of the ride-hailing app Uber, and he'll be out here in 10 seconds. Please welcome Travis Kalanick. How do you describe Travis Kalanick? I mean, he is definitely just everything you would think about, everything you've associated with Silicon Valley. Uh, well, welcome. How'd you get here tonight? Uh, pushed a button, got a ride. Did you really? Yeah. How many people here have used Uber so far? Kind of the broiness, you know, incredibly charismatic. When you say charismatic, what do you mean? It's kind of the same, and it's not exactly the same as the Trump appeal, but it is, he's real and he's honest about his missteps, and he's also not afraid to push people's buttons, and he's unfiltered. He's not afraid to say what he actually feels and thinks. Do you ever drive an Uber? Of course. What's your rating? My rating's a 5-0. Really? All five-star rides. Do you really need the cash? Why are you doing it? I mean, for me, it's just fun. He definitely spoke a sort of language of bros, a vernacular that ultimately over the years of Uber, if you didn't speak in that same language, you kind of were an outlier and an outcast. Just look at Uber's blog, where the company shares data about what it interprets as its customers' one-night stands, or as Uber calls it, rides of glory. Like, he created this culture really and truly centered around his personality. In what way? Everyone at Uber only called him by TK. The company's values were very much the image of Travis. I mean, I think one of them was always be hustling. That was one of the values? That was one of the company values. Because your car isn't just a car. It's a four-wheeled, money-making machine. So get your side hustle on. Sign up at uber.com slash drive now. And so a lot of people at the company, they really took those seriously. I mean, also in the way that they, frankly, dealt with reporters, dealt with regulators, thought about regulation. I mean, it started from the top. And it was because Travis also felt like, one, they are up against this really entrenched incumbent enemy, the taxi industry. We didn't realize it, but we're in this political campaign and the candidate is Uber. And the opponent is an asshole named Taxi. And two, they have this hugely disruptive technology that cannot, like, by any means play by the existing rules. But he is the 190th richest person in America, according to Forbes, and a celebrity among tech geeks rivals that of Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Google's Sergey Brin. All of this was happening back in 2013, less than a decade ago. But it already feels like it belongs to another era, a much more naive one when tech and the internet still felt to lots of people like they had this utopian potential. And my question is, um, I know, first of all, I love Uber. I use Uber every time I can. Hey, Travis, uh, Michael Yanover from CAA. Um, First of all, I love Uber, and I actually forget what the world was like before Uber. What I love about Uber, (laughs) the first is that... um, You're doing something in the real world. You're disrupting real world. Moving the world forward in such a transformative way and so quickly that by the time you stop to think, is this good? Is it the right direction? Is it even legal? Things have changed so much that the questions felt pointless. People 
fawned over the newest gadget or the newest feature. Um, People really loved the tech founders. There was sort of this founder worship that was happening because we had Tim Cook, we had, you know, Larry Page and Sergey of Google, we had Mark Zuckerberg, and these were characters at the time who were still vaunted and really they were seen as just these sort of magical nerds. Under the guidance of Uber's magical nerd, Travis Kalanick, the company was growing more quickly than anyone could have imagined, deploying its playbook for growth in city after city in the US and eventually all over the world. The company launched just four years ago and has quickly become the darling of those who fetishize the idea of the tech industry disrupting the old ways of doing business. A company seeking to reinvent transport, whose internal slogan was always be hustling, sorry, hustling without the G. In retrospect, isn't cool. It's just silly. But at the time, men like Kalanick were right to feel like masters of the universe. The early 2010s were the beginning of a second great tech boom. People didn't just worship founders like Mark Zuckerberg. They were throwing unbelievable amounts of money behind them. Tech companies were building products that anyone on the internet could access. The potential to scale, to go from a few users to a few billion, was limitless. Startups that adults barely understood, like Snapchat, were becoming unicorns, the most sought-after status in Silicon Valley, with valuations of more than a billion dollars. Whether these startups could actually make a profit, whether they were sustainable businesses, all that could come later. It didn't matter if you had a business model. It didn't matter if you had any future plans of making real money. What you had to prove was that you had ambitions to grow and scale. And they also put a premium on founder-led companies. Many investors at the time were looking for a founder that they could really buy into. Travis had all of these sort of purported ambitions to take over the world. And I think those ambitions were really appealing to investors. Early investors would say this to me. I bought into this company way before anyone else knew that it was going to be big. I spotted that this was going to be a big success. But also just there were financial, you know, incentives, of course, right? Like you think it's going to grow globally and and completely change the way that people move around in cities all over the world. The potential return on your investment will seem exorbitant. And in fact, like Uber did because of the labor model, they were able to scale very, very rapidly. Their true innovation was the fact that they were using freelance drivers that they didn't have to pay for their benefits, anything that would typically be reserved for employees. So it made it easy for them to scale. They had sort of a proof of concept where they just were able to launch, 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 because all they had was an app and some drivers. And every city had drivers that would be willing to jump on this app because it would be more money. And so people just kept pouring money into the company. One thing I'm still not really clear on, Johanna, is that, like, despite the company's rapid growth in that period, you know, from city to city and then outside of the US and, you know, genuinely taking over the world, was Uber making any money? No. (laughs) How does that work? I mean, explain it to someone who knows nothing about business. How can you run a business that's growing so quickly, that's attracting so much funding when there's no, not even a pathway to profitability? They were able to just run on and get more money based on their growth numbers. They needed to show that they were growing their rider base, that they were growing their driver base, that they were growing how many cities that they were in and how many markets that they were in. And so the money just kept coming. Valued at more than $18 billion. Says Uber is now raising money that could value that company at more than $25 billion. 
values Uber at $50 billion. And that money was subsidizing all of their growth. They were subsidizing the rides. The rides were so cheap because investor money was subsidizing it. There was not, you know, a real plan to figure out profitability. They believed that they would be able to just grow to a level where the money would follow. Why do you need that much money? Well, look, I mean, I think the opportunity that Uber is facing is a, is a very, very big one. Mm-hmm. And you should finance against that opportunity mm-hmm. so that you can, you can get this to every major city in the world and get it there at scale quickly. For most of this time, as Uber was growing, on its way to becoming Silicon Valley's biggest unicorn, it was still functioning in most places in a legal grey area, facing resistance from regulators and the taxi industry that often turned violent. It didn't matter. They had to stick to the strategy. Keep growing. So they have to be illegal. They have to push back against regulators. With Uber, things have just gone so well for so long in terms of the business that you truly have the opportunity to do things the right way. Those existing rules were not created at the time that these innovations, these supposedly and purportedly amazingly disruptive innovations were created. Work with the best people that you possibly can and do things in a principled way, in a way that you believe in and that you stand for. And you can hold your principles really, really hard because because things are going well. You know, tech is this sort of new frontier. We're out here to make the world a better place. And while I don't think that maybe they really set out to do that, I do absolutely think that employees within these companies, employees within Uber, ultimately ended up believing in it. The lesson from the past is that, you know, look, you you only live once. Uber's rise in those early years was like a fever dream. It was chaos. Clashes with governments in dozens of countries, fights everywhere with the taxi industry, more money than any startup had ever attracted. There were wild, days-long company parties with private concerts by Beyonce. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump. And then, in 2017, it became a nightmare. The office of President of the United States. People in Silicon Valley and across the US started to feel like something had gone seriously wrong. And there was a lot of blame to go around. One of the targets was an industry that up until then had been seen as the pioneer of an exciting new future. Not anymore, though. For the whole tech industry, it was the beginning of what's been called the tech lash. All of the adulation that companies like Facebook had enjoyed for years suddenly flipped to mistrust and resentment. And for the man who had led Uber's aggressive growth, Travis Kalanick, it'd be the end of the ride. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. It began soon after Trump assumed office in January 2017. One of the first things he implemented was the so-called Muslim ban, barring entry into the US to travellers from seven Muslim-majority countries. 
It led to huge protests and strikes, including by the taxi industry. Uber made what was basically a PR blunder, one that made it look like the company was trying to undercut the taxi strike and make a profit off of Trump's Muslim ban. Hashtag delete Uber took off this weekend. Users are boycotting Uber as a result of Trump's immigration ban. A few weeks later, a former engineer, a woman called Susan Fowler, who had quit the company, wrote a 3,000-word post on her blog about what she called her very, very strange year at Uber. A former engineer is going public with what she says is a frequent problem inside Uber, sexual harassment and sexism. She describes the company as an organisation in chaos. And this morning... It blew the lid off of a company where sexual harassment appeared to be rampant and where HR encouraged women to just keep quiet about what they were experiencing. But within weeks of arriving in 2015, Fowler says her direct supervisor made unwanted advances. But she claims upper management tried to sweep her complaint under the rug. The same media, the same society that had glorified brash tech bros like Travis Kalanick was now growing suspicious of the culture they were creating at these multi-billion dollar tech companies, reshaping the way we lived. Some people... Don't like to take responsibility for their shit. Responsibility. They blame everything. The next month, a video emerged of Kalanick arguing with an Uber driver, and it appeared to confirm all those suspicions. Good luck. Good luck to you too, but I know you don't gonna go far. A short time later, the New York Times revealed the existence of a sophisticated and secret tool Uber had been using to shield its drivers from government scrutiny. This about a potential, another potential scandal regarding Uber. The New York Times reporting Uber has utilized a program for several years to deceive law enforcement officials in cities where the ride-sharing service was outlawed. The program was called Grayball. It was a tool that figured out when regulators or police were using the app to try to find Uber drivers so they could find them. And I admit, this is kind of genius. It would give those regulators a fake Uber app, one that never quite found them a car. Minutes ago, Uber sent uh, CNBC this statement. It says, this program denies ride requests to fraudulent users who are violating our terms of service, whether that's people aiming to physically harm drivers, competitors looking to disrupt our operations, or opponents who collude with officials. They were only able to do this because of another tool called Godview that let Uber track basically anyone who was using the app. And they didn't just use Godview on regulators. I've personally had an experience with Godview. Really? Yeah, I mean, an Uber executive in New York had actually tracked my ride using Godview. What? How did you find out about that? <laughs> I was on my way to a meeting with a New York Uber executive. So he was the general manager of the New York office at that time. And I took an Uber because I was running late. And I let him know via email on my way there that I was running late. I said, I'm in an Uber, I'm running late, but I'll be there soon. When I arrived to the office, he was already like at the front of the office waiting for me. And I hadn't told him, you know, how late I was going to be or when I would be arriving. And I asked him when I got there, I was like, oh, uh, how did you know I was going to be here? And he showed me his phone and he said, oh, I was watching your ride. Remember, Uber has data on the comings and goings of all its customers. And BuzzFeed reported that an Uber manager accessed the profile of a BuzzFeed reporter without permission. Eventually, these and other scandals got to be too much. Breaking news, Uber CEO Travis Kalanick resigning overnight amid recent scandals. Fighting it every step of the way, Kalanick was forced out of his job. The embattled CEO releasing a statement overnight. I love Uber more than anything in the world, and at this difficult moment in my personal life, I have accepted the investor's request to step aside. By the end of the year, 
he was no longer Uber's CEO. At the end of 2017, Uber was a completely changed company. And we had seen all these revelations that, you know, to some degree confirmed what we had already suspected and, you know, to some degree had just exposed a completely different side of the company that we had, you know, even the most critical reporters hadn't seen. And at that time, Uber were cop to it. They would say, yes, we did that. We're sorry. Yes, we did that. We're sorry. And here's how we're going to fix it over and over again. And so to a certain degree, I think myself and other reporters did feel like they're copping to it because there is there still might be more hidden beneath the surface. The scandals of 2017 were just a glimpse at what it took for Uber to take over the world. It's a story that journalists have told the best they can based on dashcam footage, blogs by former employees, and a few company sources. They've known there's more to it, but from the outside, it's a hard story to tell. Unless you have access to tens of thousands of emails, minutes from meetings, text messages exchanged by senior executives. The kind of information that seemed impossible to get until earlier this year. Coming up, the Uber files, an unprecedented look inside a world-changing company. We started by telling you about Uber's plea. There were more steps. They just weren't visible to the public. Early this year, Paul Lewis, The Guardian's head of investigations, and a team of reporters got their hands on a huge trove of information from inside Uber. We were leaked a trove of more than 120,000 confidential company files. Paul was one of the first to go through it. These were company presentations, invoices, emails, iMessages, WhatsApp exchanges, sometimes between the company's most senior executives. So as a data set, it was quite unlike anything we'd seen before. The files were from the period when Travis Kalanick ran the company, and they were like an X-ray of what was going on inside Uber during that era. I remember being struck by how unusual it was to see documents, communications of this kind of richness and texture. You know, I, I'd never seen anything like this before with respect to a, a major tech company, any corporation really. There was a text message exchange from a very senior Uber executive who is normally very calibrated because it's their job to communicate to the world what the company's position is, saying in many of the places in which it was operating, it was just, quote, fucking illegal. While Uber was ramming itself into cities, showering drivers and customers with cheap rides and great wages, the files showed it was also spending millions of dollars lobbying politicians. Most of the time, what journalists and the public get to see and understand with respect to lobbying is quite dry information. You know, this is sort of public disclosures about a meeting that may have been held or you find out that there was a phone call on a certain date between certain individuals. But you never get to know what was actually said. Now, here we had, you know, an evidence trail of the whole process through which Uber was lobbying prime ministers, presidents, oligarchs, media barons, all across the world. And Paul's team discovered so much of that lobbying was secret, never recorded anywhere. We were seeing 
meetings, including, for example, here in the UK with, with cabinet ministers. So these were sort of secret, under-the-radar meetings that Uber and its lobbyists were having with some of the most important politicians in the land, and there was no trace of them having happened. The files show, in many places, the lobbying worked. Even where Uber was operating outside the law, it was winning support from powerful lawmakers. There were a few places in Europe where Uber's arrival was was as controversial as France. I mean, it was an incredibly volatile mix. There was a huge and furious backlash against the company, and it divided the French cabinet. But Uber very quickly alighted on an ally, and that was Emmanuel Macron, who was then economy minister. And we see in the data that he went to extraordinary lengths behind the scenes to help Uber. And he even told them he'd brokered a a secret deal with opponents in the French cabinet. One of the French ministers at the time really opposed to Uber was Bernard Cazeneuve. So after Macron secures this deal, Travis Kalanick, Uber's chief executive, texts him, can we trust Caz? Macron then replies... We had a meeting yesterday with the Prime Minister. Casanova will keep the taxis quiet and I will gather everybody next week to prepare the reform and correct the law. Kaz accepted the deal. Best. The impression you get from these messages is that Uber had someone pulling the strings on their behalf at the very highest levels of the French government. So when authorities in Marseille appear to have banned one of the company's services, The immediate reaction from Uber's chief lobbyist is to contact Macron and ask if he can help Uber understand what's going on. Macron then replies, quote, I'll look at this personally and have all of the facts sent to me and I will make a decision this evening. At this point, let's stay calm. We knew that Uber's arrival in new markets often led to violence, but the files showed that there was another step in their playbook. In some cases, Uber executives took advantage of that violence. They saw it as helpful to their mission. I mean, Uber was so controversial in France and the backlash was so intense that there were quite regularly at stages, you know, intense, sometimes violent protests and riots. Uber drivers were being beaten up. They were being intimidated. Their cars were being smashed. It was against this backdrop that I think one of the most stark exchanges in the Uber files leak emerges. This is where Travis Kalanick suggests that the best way to respond to these violent taxi strikes in France is to stage a counter-protest. He suggests this should be an act of civil disobedience of some kind. Now, then, when he's warned by other executives that far-right thugs have infiltrated the taxi strikes, and that there was a risk of violence against Uber drivers, he replies, I think it's worth it. Violence guarantees success. It's also consistent with other things that we've seen in the data, where it appears to be the case that Uber's executives are exploiting violence against drivers. They're leaking stories to friendly newspapers. They're trying to leverage the volatility, the conflict, the anger, to pressure governments to rewrite laws. And when they didn't have the support of authorities, the files showed that Uber had a way of hiding its trail. At its offices in Europe, when police conducted a raid trying to get evidence of how Uber was operating, the company developed a sophisticated system, something called the kill switch, to hide that evidence. You know, the basic process was when police turned up at one of Uber's offices in a place like Paris or Amsterdam or Brussels, there would be a message that went out from a senior executive 
to say, quote, kill access now. And the response would be to implement a set of technical procedures that would prevent police from accessing the data that they wanted to gather evidence. There's a number of examples where we can see this happening. It was Uber's playbook for responding to police raids. These were just some of what the Uber files showed about how the company operated in that period between 2013 and 2017, when it was crashing into one country after another. Over the next few days, The Guardian will be publishing more from the files, and there are a bunch of stories already online. They tell us about a company, but also an entire industry, one that, over the past decade, has transformed the way we live and work. I was working as San Francisco bureau chief at the time of Uber's rise and aggressive expansion. There was a myth around tech at that time, which was just that it was unstoppable and it spread around the world was completely organic, that it wasn't even anything that the companies were doing. It was just that their services were so popular that they were just spreading like contagion from smartphone to smartphone. What I think the Uber files shows is actually there were some really old school, hardball, conventional lobbying tactics that were enabling companies like Uber, Uber in particular, but other companies too, I'm sure, to brute force their way into parts of the world that, quite frankly, there were many people that didn't want them. Like I said at the start, I barely remember what we did before Uber. Before a whole universe of apps that let you push a button to get a taxi or food or anything delivered and have someone out there driving around waiting to take that call. The Uber Files is about what it took to create that world. It was the trailblazer for gig economy companies. It paved the way for a a model of flexible working without the attendant basic worker rights that you get from straightforward employment. Rather than there being a public conversation about this technology, about how much people were being paid, whether or not they deserved employment rights, rather than constructing a, a legal framework around these new innovative developments, what happened was that these technologies were basically imposed on us and our societies and our cities. And I think we're still living with a legacy today. That was Paul Lewis, The Guardian's head of investigations. Thanks so much to him and to Johanna Buyan. In a statement, a spokesperson for Travis Kalanick said that Uber's expansion initiatives were, quote, led by over 100 leaders in dozens of countries around the world and at all times under the direct oversight and with the full approval of Uber's robust legal policy and compliance groups. The spokesperson said Kalanick, quote, never suggested that Uber should take advantage of violence at the expense of driver safety. Any suggestion he was involved in such activity is completely false. In a statement, Uber admitted to, quote, mistakes and missteps, but said it had been transformed under the leadership of the current chief executive, Dara Khosrowshahi. Uber said it stopped using the kill switch in 2017 when Khosrowshahi replaced Kalanick and overhauled its corporate structure. A spokesperson for Kalanick said the kill switch was not designed or implemented to obstruct justice. She said it was used to protect intellectual property and the privacy of customers. President Macron did not respond to detailed questions. In a statement, the Elysee Palace said, quote, The economic policy in favour of job creation and the deployment of new services for French citizens, to which Emmanuel Macron actively participated at the time, is well known. His functions naturally led him to discuss with numerous foreign companies that were engaged in the deep mutations of those services that took place in the years you mentioned. 
Those changes needed to be facilitated by loosening some administrative or regulatory chokeholds. Bernard Cazeneuve said he was never consulted or kept informed of any agreement with Uber to make it easier for the company to operate in France. You can find full statements from both Uber and Travis Kalanick at theguardian.com and on our podcast page. That was Today in Focus host Michael Safi. Episodes two and three of the Uberfile series continues this week. And if you'd like to hear more of this, please check out the Today in Focus podcast. This episode was presented by Michael Safi, Johanna Buyan and Paul Lewis. It was produced by Sammy Kent and Rose Dolarabiti. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. Additional production by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Phil Maynard and Nicole Jackson. I'm Jane Lee, and I'll be back with a new episode of Full Story for you tomorrow.